shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. This time around, we are looking at Fantasia 2000, an animated film from 1999 from Walt Disney Pictures. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And we have a very special guest. You might recognize his writing from such esteemed online uh, publications as Film Inquiry, Talk Film Society, and Battleship Pretension. Alex Miller, welcome to SequelCast 2. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I think that's a slightly better intro than we did last week for the Fantasia <laughs> episode. Um, yeah, Fantasia 2000. This came out in uh, 2000, as you can assume. Not in 1997, like Blues Brothers 2000. Uh, this was directed by Don Hahn, Pihote Hunt, Hendel Batoy, Eric Goldberg, James Algar, Francis Glebus, and Paul and Gaetan Brizzy, produced by Roy E. Disney and Donald W. Ernst. Um, featuring a lot of different actors in the live-action segments. Uh, cinematography by Tim Schurstedt. Um, although this, this had a premiere in 1999, um, you know, it, it had an exclusive IMAX engagement from January 1st to April 30th. It also played in non-IMAX screens in uh, June... 2000, which is kind of a dumb release date for this kind of a movie. Um, I'm going to tell you why that happened, because I okay. I know why that happened. Um, we'll get into that in just one second. Right, so. Running time okay, no is problem. 75 minutes. Uh, this was a box office disappointment, much like the original. Budget of uh, $85 million made about $90 million. Go. Hmm. All right, so you mentioned the weird the weird release date uh, for this movie. So, uh, yes, Fantasia 2000 was originally released in IMAX in IMAX theaters uh, in 1999 and IMAX theaters were not nearly as common then as they were now. So, it was really difficult to see the film. So, a lot a lot of us myself included as an animation devotee because we didn't have an IMAX theater in my area. I was waiting for the general release. The general release was delayed 3 times. And the reason it was delayed was so this movie, Fantasia 2000, could open the same day as Titan AE, the Don Bluth science fiction film by, uh, by the young Fox Animation Studios. So both movies were released June 16th, 2000, uh, which uh, was my birthday. Uh, and so I went to see Titan AE, a good friend of mine, my friend Mark, uh, treated me to that as a, as a birthday present because I really wanted to support Don Bluth and alternatives to Disney animation. But they... they they held up the general release to release an opposite Titan AE specifically to crush uh, Fox Animation so that they wouldn't have to deal with any competition. Damn. So that's why it has such a weird release date. In fact, I'm pulling up the opening weekend, and uh, you mentioned the, the intention was to crush Titan AE. Um, that weekend, Fantasia 2000 opened in number 11, Titan AE opened number 5. So in a way, both movies failed, uh, <laughs> at least as far as money is concerned. Yes, the number one movie that weekend, do you know this? No, but I can't. No. Uh, the remake of uh, Shaft. 
<laughs> with Samuel L. Jackson. Not not a remake, I should say. It's a it's technically a sequel. Because he's son of Shaft it would have been a better title. Um That was we, uh, John Singleton, right? Yeah. Um I, I don't think it's a terrible movie, but the the best uh thing I cannot think of the movie when without thinking at the time I worked at a used to be a chain of stores called Media Play. Did you ever have those, Alex? No, I don't think so. Okay, Best Buy later bought them out, then they went out of business. But it, it's like a Best Buy store uh, in the suburbs. Uh, anyhow, uh, I was working there, and uh, the Shaft had just come out. The Samuel L. Jackson version came out on DVD, and I was like, "Whoa!" And and this old black guy came in, and I we were sort of talking black exploitation, and I pointed to the new Shaft movie. He's like, "What do you think of the new Shaft movie?" And he's like, "Man, you know the Shaft I knew was a lover, not a fighter," and he absolutely <laughs> was right. Like, it, this was a sexless Shaft. Yeah, and that was the big thing about the first Shaft was that, you know, Shaft the ladies, man. He was a sex machine with all the chicks. Yeah, and, totally, right? dude. And you can dig it. Yeah, it's, uh... And I think... and I'm, I'm sort of, um... Upset they didn't do a sequel to that, because I think you could have built upon it. I don't. I think Samuel L. Jackson was good in the part, and that you had Richard Roundtree uh, making a cameo as Papa Shaft. And he got to be yeah. in an action scene. I, I thought it was um, interesting. Not to mention you have Christian Bale uh, basically redoing his American Psycho performance because he was still coming off that film. Yeah, that's true. I, You know what was crazy was that um, Shaft was originally, the first Shaft um, was actually, it was just, the, the script was just a cop movie script. It wasn't meant to be a, a it wasn't meant to be a, the black exploitation film, but the success of Melvin Van Peebles' uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song had the studio kind of, you know, recalibrate the, hmm. the, the movie. So then they kind of got the Isaac Hayes um, score going and Roundtree attached to direct and Gordon Parks. In well, there. And, and, and Shaft was a, a big series of books, too. I mean, they, um, you know, although we got four Shaft movies, uh, ironically, we should do that in Sequel Cast 2 probably at some point. Um Ooh. I don't know why we're talking about Shaft when we're talking... Oh, because of the Fantasia 2000. Uh, this is quite the tangent. Okay. But, um, you know, I mean, some of the, the Shaft books are out of print, and they're quite expensive. I've been wanting to track them down, but, like, especially titles like Shaft Among the Jews uh, is a very expensive um, <laughs> book to track down. And uh, uh, there's a, a fella writing a, a Shaft comic, and he even wrote a, a new Shaft novel um, that's supposed to be pretty cool. Oh. So I, I'm a fan of Shaft, if you haven't guessed. Um, I'm also a fan of Fantasia 2000. Well, kind of, not really. Let's get into it. Um, <laughs> I saw Fantasia 2000 in theaters with my um, with my grandparents when I was visiting them in the metro D.C. area. Cool. And it was on IMAX. Um, would have been over spring break, uh, I think. And I wasn't crazy about seeing it, but then afterwards I was glad we went out to see it. I think it was a neat... Uh, seeing the stuff on the big, seeing this kind of movie on a big screen is um, pretty neat. I think it's, I, I mentioned this on Twitter talking to you, Alex, it's somewhat galling. This film has a running time that's almost half that of the original. Yeah, I was surprised to see that. I had never, I didn't know this had even existed till um, in watching it in preparation for this episode. Really? Okay. Yeah, in the yeah. in the yeah. early 2000s, Disney released a three-DVD box set of the Fantasia, Fantasia 2000, and a bonus disc. Uh, released it around the same time as a box set of Toy Story uh, 1 and 2 and a, a bonus disc. Um, but yeah, this is not one of the... the Not, you know, a, a mainstream 
Disney animated blockbuster. Uh, Thrasher, what did you first see, Fantasia 2000? All right, so... Uh, as I mentioned, when this movie came out, I really wanted to support uh, to support uh, Don Bluth and his creative endeavors. So I I did not see this in the theaters. I now wish I had. I would have loved to have seen this in IMAX. Uh, I did not see Fantasia 2000 until just a few years ago. It had shown up on a streaming service my wife and I subscribed to, and I just huh. decided enough time had passed, and I just because I had forgotten this movie existed as well. Yeah. And I decided, well, I might as well see it just out of curiosity. And your first time watching this, Alex, was to prep for the show. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it before. And what did you think of um, the? It's sort of on a high level. What did you think of like the animation? Because by this time, this came out in the year two thousand. Certainly, things were moving more CG for animated features. And I think that um, I think like the first one, it starts out wonderfully with the. Uh, with the Beethoven symphony and the abstract patterns and stuff. Mm, yeah. I noticed that it was, um, like, whereas the original was a little more, and I think this has to do with the, you know, 60-year difference, um, the animation was a little more subtly paired, whereas this is, you know, note for note, you know, you have a very percussive way of, of animating the, you know, abstract images to pair with every single little, you know, rise and pitch and fall and everything of every note of the music, which is very specific, I thought was interesting. Um, but then, like the other one, it kind of gets a little more um, cutesy in some of the uh, in some of the shorts. But, Do we want to um, get into the individual segments? Yeah. I, yeah, I think before we... Do I, I was just historically looking at what other animated stuff Disney released around this time, and I think this is quite um, in, interesting. You so ninety nine Disney released quite, and this came out in December of ninety nine. Uh, Disney released quite a lot of animated features. Not only uh, they start in March, they had Doug's first movie, which was Disney technically because um, they had you know the the new Doug series was on ABC. Uh, then Tarzan came out in June 99. Then Toy Story 2, uh, which is one of my favorites, in November of oh, 99. Yeah. And then Fantasia 2000 premiered December 99, but then, you know, had the IMAX engagement. Uh, in May of 2000, uh, Disney did their CG-featured Dinosaur, which we touched on. Well, don't forget episode. the Tigger movie in February. Who can forget the Tigger movie? America can forget the Tigger movie. I've never seen it. I know it has a Kenny Loggins song, and I know um, Kenny Loggins made fun of one of the composers and made him change his composition. Oh, no. Because it had original uh, songs by the Sherman Brothers, who did, you know, famously music for the Jungle Book and Mary Poppins and stuff. And wow. um, they, the Sherman Brothers worked with Kenny Loggins on doing the end credit sort of vocal theme. And he, and some, uh, they did a documentary on the Sherman Brothers a few years ago. I, I forget what it was called, but it's quite good. Um, and Kenny Loggins is saying originally the song they wanted me to do for the Ticker movie was something like, "He's got a lot of stripes and he's Ticker. He's bouncing around." <laughs> and Kenny Loggins told him, "No, we're gonna make something heartfelt and a song that means something." And, and, and you get this bit of treacle um, as the Kenny Loggins single for that film. So you, you mentioned Kenny Loggins in his song for the Tigger movie, and all I can think of is the wonderful thing about Tiggers. Tiggers are wonderful things. 
The tops are made out of rubber. The bottoms are made out of springs. Dip, 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 dip. Yeah, it's your your heart will lead you home, which um, will will we'll put you into an epileptic shock from its uh, as you gag on its sweetness. <laughs> it's ugh. okay. Fantasia two thousand. Um, <laughs> unlike the original film. You don't have the same person introducing each segment. And I think that hurts this film. Yeah. Well, uh, like each agreed. It, it comes off as very gimmicky. Like, what celebrity is going to come next? Because, yeah, like, and especially since I don't think they even mentioned, uh, like, there's no hint that you're going to get, like, celebrity hosts. But, like, it, it leads to, and each of these hosts are good in their own right, but they should have just stuck with one. I think, um... Bette Midler would have made a great host for the whole thing. James Earl Jones would have made a great host for the whole thing. Steve Martin would have made a great host. Uh, I would love to have seen Bernadette Peters hosting this, but instead it just jump, it jumps around too much. Yeah, totally. Well, like, the first one is Steve Martin, and I'm like, well, that makes sense. He's funny. He's a musician. He's got a great personality. He did a lot of like, movies for Touchstone. Yeah, yeah, and then just, you know, stomps off the screen. <laughs> Well, yeah, although also, that is, uh, go ahead. I say that is my least favorite of his comic personas is just the self-serving asshole. I feel like he sh he should have had a bit more gravitas uh, for this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he does the introduction. They kind of just turns into a dick, and that's it. <laughs> I love the joke about. Um, I can't think of Steve Martin without thinking him in those Pink Panther movies he did. Uh -huh. And uh, Gilbert yeah. Gottfried on the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast loves to rip into those movies, and he's like, they should have called the movie The Pink Fucking Panther, with a question mark <laughs> at the end, just to, just to separate it from the original. He's like, there's no reason they needed to call it The Pink Panther. You could have called it something else, and, and you know, changed the character names, and no one would have given a damn. Yep. <laughs> but it's not like, um... Uh... Oh, who was the guy that directed the original Pink Panther? Oh, shit. Um, shit Did a lot of comedies. Was married to Julie Anders. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. If only no. we had a resource that we could look up anything we wanted to well, know and have results. I'm doing, I'm doing some post-search right now. Blake, Blake Edwards. Blake Edwards. Yeah. Um, it's not like he didn't tap dance over the grave of um, <laughs> Peter Sellers with the three posthumous Pink Panther sequels. Oh, yeah. One of which he got sued for, A Trail of the Pink Panther. He got sued by the estate of uh, Peter Sellers. That would be an interesting trilogy to cover, the non-Peter Sellers Pink Panther I film. quite like that. If you're going to divvy it up, that's not a bad way to do it. And, yeah. and I think... Um, oh, oh, what, whatever one came between Trail and Son, I think Curse of the Pink Panther... Or no, for Son of the Pink Panther, it has Roberto Benigni... But they were considering casting Tim Curry in that part. Um, huh. He was up in the running, which I don't think he can... Physical comedy isn't Tim Curry's strength. It's screaming at things. <laughs> and, and having a weird laugh. Um, okay. Fa how, how, I, God, I've had too much <laughs> vodka in my coffee. Fantasia 2000. <laughs> yeah, so we, yes, we open... <laughs> like We get right into it with Beethoven's uh, Symphony Number no. 5. <laughs> And yeah, I didn't really realize this at the time. It's a callback to the um, you know instrumental uh, abstract piece in the original we talked about last week. 
And yet it's not as abstract as it could be because it, it keeps no. you know, abstract shapes, but they keep defaulting to this bird and butterfly imagery, which I I think it's good imagery. And and yet I wish it was kind of I wish it was kind of broken up. I wish they played with a bit more than just the abstract birds and butterflies and the light and the clouds. I, f- I feel like something is is some shapes are missing from this. You almost yeah. get the feel there's like a corporate dictate to like they must turn into animals. You can't have triangles fuck around on the screen. Right. We can't just have triangle fest. It's got to be. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't mind a feature called Triangle Fest. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. But... It, well, beyond beyond that, it, there is sort of a, a, a narrative uh, that they kind of attach to the music, which also prevents it from being purely abstract. What's fascinating is um, Roy E. Disney had been trying to get a Fantasia sequel done for years because it was very special for Walt Disney. Uh, you know, a famous quote from Walt Disney, I can never build another Fantasia I can improve, I can elaborate, that's all. He wanted don't Fantasia you... to run in perpetuity. Huh. See, don't you think that would be the kind of, like, mantra that would keep you from trying to make another Fantasia movie? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, at the time this was released, in, in 2000, basically, Disney had not sequel fucked their franchises into the ground. That's true, yeah. You, I mean, you did have the Tigger movie. We just mentioned that. But uh, maybe Lion King 2 might have been direct-to-video around the time. But for the most part, they had well, not there, done Cinderella were, Time Travel 3. Well, there, there were several direct-to-video movies, but they were very easy to ignore. That's true, too. I, I guess I, like I a made a point which I was disproved at. But um, my... I guess what I'm trying to say is Fantasia had been a real passion project for Roy Disney to do another one. And you think Disney makes so much money from so many other things. Couldn't they just like throw a hundred million dollars, like set it on fire to, to make a Fantasia every few years? Like, I don't see what the harm in that is. Like, yeah. If, if Roy Disney was in charge of the company, I think that would be really easy to do. Mm, but sure. as he's not, right. You know, it's the all, whole Eisner stuff. The bottom line. Yeah. I mean, how do you merchandise this film? There's certainly Sorcerer's Apprentice merchandise. Oh, very true. Right. But, I mean, otherwise, I don't know. Like, the soundtrack, the, uh... I mean, may- maybe maybe what you do is you make Fantasia the thing that interns work on. Well, Come on. Well, it gives more of an excuse to be uh, experimental and to really hone craft. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's what I like. The concept, I mean... Most Disney or Pixar features have the same story of isn't it great to be a family and oh we're a bunch of weirdos yay like it's I'm getting sick and sick of I would have thought but this is sort of a separate rant but not really because Fantasia is more avant-garde um I thought by 2017 we would get like uh American animated films that were more like the equivalent of anime or action pictures or something and yeah. you you still get like minions garbage um right. yes cgi has done some great things for animation but it's also enabled some terrible things for animation speaking of which did ralph bakshi ever come out with the crowdfunded um cartoon thing uh oh the the last days of coney island yeah 
Uh, it has been playing the festival circuit, and he's been doing a lecture tour with it. I don't, I don't think it's secured any kind of wide release yet. And I believe it's a short. I don't think it's a feature. Is that right? No, it's not. It's not feature length. Okay. It's, it's, it's like a long short film. That, that's one thing I'll give Bakshi credit for is he at least tried something really different. And although he failed a lot of times, at least he tried. Um, making more of a Fantasia connection. Um, Alex, have you ever seen American Pop? Yeah, I have. It's been a long time. Uh-huh. But what I was curious with was, um, did Wizards ever get a like a mainstream Blu-ray DVD release yet? In in the United States, you mean? Uh, l- l- let me look that up. That's a good question. That's um, yeah, I love that movie. Do you? It's, I do too. I I love the. Um, it's not scared of its sexuality. I think it's very, and I think the plot is better than Fire and Ice. Which is a bit muddled. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is it is a heavy metal support story come to life in all the best ways. Yeah, That's I mean, it just, the way the the poster is, is just real cool. Uh, yeah, it looks like in the United States, it got a Blu-ray release in 2012, and you can purchase it for uh, under 15 bucks. I can purchase that. Yeah, um, that, that's a good price. Cool. Um, but yeah, I guess bringing it back to Fantasia. You know what I thought was weird was when I was watching Fantasia 2000, I just remember thinking that this feels remarkably half-hearted for huh. something that was such a flagship Disney yeah. film. I mean, why? If you're like you said, if you're Disney, why not make this a bigger movie or go... Like, you know, the first one was very... Um, you know, took a lot of risks in its form and, mm. and style. So why not have, like, not just classical music, but, like, I don't know, like, Tom York or something like that, like a more modern or a Philip Glass or someone like that in there so you can kind of forge new ground the way the first one did. I was just thinking the same thing. Why why not use some folk music or some early pop music? Because the closest we get to that is, is the Rhapsody in Blue segment. Like, oh, speaking of which, in the... Um... In the early 90s, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was wanting to do a Fantasia film but have it all be Beatles music. Huh. Yeah, I can get behind that. Which, I mean, you're right. That. It's not. It, there's no reason Fantasia 2000 had to be classical music. It's a bit lazy, if not consistent, in making that choice. Yeah. Not to mention, some of the pieces, uh, the music pieces in here, are, are very pedestrian, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um... We talked about the, the first Beethoven segment. Second one, Pines of Rome, in which uh, whales and family uh, in outer space. This this is... I'm the most ambivalent about this segment. It's pretty. I, I like some of the imagery, but it's... You don't always need a narrative with these things. You can be more uh, abstract. Like, why not really let it all hang out there and instead make... You know, something that could have been a, a crappy Disney short from, like, the 50s. Yeah, like, I, it starts off, and I'm like, okay, whales, they're majestic and stuff. I can get behind <laughs> Okay, cool. whales. That's, that's yeah. a quote in the box for Fantasia 2000. <laughs> <laughs> whales, I can, I can dig it. Um, and Yeah, no, and it's, and it's cool. And then they start flying and frolicking in space, and then I just feel like I, I start laughing and you know, uh, by thinking about, like, this, like, old Roger Corman poster, like, whales in space! <laughs> <laughs> we are whales, whales in space! Yeah. It's, uh, 
We're swimming along, protecting the cetacean race. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like. I think the choice of whales. I think is 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 good. I like that it's not like literally. Well, let's have pines from Rome dancing. Oh, um, <laughs> overall, <laughs> overall, the whales look good. I even like the notion of let's show the whales flying. That's kind of a neat, fantastical element. But the two things that really prevent this from from achieving a great height for me one you're you're right is is the narrative particularly the whole bit where the baby whale gets trapped in an iceberg and has to be reunited with its family that's the middle of this segment right like like it feels like once once he's reunited it's like this thing is just killing time Mm. and trying to come up with visuals the other thing that really hurts this so all the whales uh are three-dimensional cgi uh, most of the backgrounds are are done traditionally, although there there is some digital touch up. But what kills it is that the whales have two D animated eyes, mm. and that just makes them look monstrous. Yeah, great point. Yeah, it's okay. You know, I, I see the whales flying around. I'm reminded a bit of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I it, it's a bit uninspired. I agree and. You could just have the whole segment be shorter and have it be whales flopping around in, in space and make it a bit more abstract, I guess. Or or even in the ocean. I mean, it's not yeah, like yeah, I don't right. ever sure. see the underside of an ice shelf in the water, but they look amazing from beneath. Hmm. I, I don't know why we can't see that. It's really hard to draw underwater stuff and get all the lighting. But yeah, I mean, they did it in Finding Nemo. What the hell? Um the, the next segment, by far, is my favorite in the film, Rhapsody in Blue. Oh, me too. By George Gershwin. And they the, the art style is deliberately in the Al Hirschfeld um, look to it. And you get narrative stuff with no dialogue, but it captures the hustle and bustle of the best of New York. And what's interesting is Hirschfeld was still alive when this came out, and I wonder what he thought of this piece. They, they must have consulted him. I would yeah, think they had to... In- they had so much Hirschfeld influence in Disney because the genie in Aladdin was modeled after the Hirschfeld style. I didn't know that, but that that makes sense. Come to think of it, yeah, this one's um, definitely stood out the most. Uh, the animation's awesome. It's got a great flavor and rhythm to it. It's like this is what I was, I guess, to touch on what we brought up earlier with being more experimental was that you have this cool like you know reminded me of like uh, the way. I felt like this is the way Woody Allen thinks of New York and like, yeah, you know, yeah. like uh-huh. and, and you know, hustle and bustle and you're down and out guy and your construction worker and your, you know, poo poo dowagers coming out of, uh, you know, fancy hotels and everything. And it's got a really great flavor and rhythm to it. I really dug this one. Really good use of color, too. I'm mean, like the color palette is pri- is primarily blue as fits Rhapsody in blue, but it's every kind of blue you could imagine and whenever they deviate from that color palette it makes such a strong deliberate statement this is the segment that has the clearest vision of anything else uh, in this movie yeah it felt the strongest definitely to me i felt like uh to go back to another conversation like a like an oscar short like it was just a really solid piece of animation and like little details like the little uh, steam coming off of the copy or the little lines i love that little like retro style um way of animating it was really cool this could stand on its own. The only the only thing I don't like about this movie because I, I like that you know we get to see all the characters get their highs and lows. 
Uh, but at the end of the movie, like every every character has had a sort of victory except one. You know, the the riveter gets to play at a jazz club. The put upon husband gets to have a nice night on his own at the jazz club. The uh, out of work guy gets a gets a late shift job that he really enjoys. The little girl's reunited with her parents. It can just play and enjoy some unstructured time. But the rich guy's wife doesn't get a victory. She's left swinging from a hook, ranting and raving at the construction <laughs> site at night. And I really feel like that character that character should also have a happy ending. Like that character like because we know that character is obsessed with dogs. Why not end it why not give her a victory where she gets to spend some time alone with her favorite poodle? Like why doesn't she get to be happy at the end of this? I, yeah, I love I love the muted use of colors. The it, it captures the uh, vivacity of of New York. I you know the, the description about it's like what Woody Allen likes to think of New York as being is right on point. Uh, I I did uh, track down an interview in Animation World um, Network from 1999, in which um, the they talk about showing this sequence to Al Hirschfeld, Al Hirschfeld's wife called it the best birthday present he ever could have gotten. And Hirschfeld himself said, I'm very pleased with what they did. It's a marvelous job. Um, Eric, who I guess was the director of the segment, seems to have understood what I've tried to do in my drawings. I'm very pleased with it. I'm anxious to see the finished film. Oh, wow. So, and he got to he got to watch a version that was uh, fully animated and 60% colored shortly before his 96th birthday. Wow. That's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, that's, uh, it's... I, I mean, you could make this into a feature, really. It would be cool to have a whole movie done like, done in this visual style. I, I think that that would be a, just a treat to watch. With no dialogue. Disney would never do it, but they should. Well, I think you could do it with with dialogue, but, like, I don't know. It just, it's just so, it's so visually striking. It, do, it does make you wonder why you didn't see more animation influenced by Hirschfeld. I mean, but if you add voices, wouldn't it ruin it? I mean, does that mean you would, like, slather on every New York stereotype? Oh, my God, i got to well, get a knish. Well, <laughs> kind of, well, it kind of would be neat to have, like, an animated tribute to New York. I wouldn't. I don't think adding voices would destroy it if you were doing a long form. It would certainly weaken it if it was a short film, but if you're doing a full feature animation, I think it would work perfectly fine. Just, you know, get Chaz Palmateri involved. Get, get like, mm, some... Mm, okay, yeah. Just get some right. real cool New York types involved, and I think it would work great. I would love to see what Woody Allen thinks of this segment. Yeah. And Spike Lee. Oh, do you know what uh, so yeah, Stan... yeah. Well put. Oh, very true. Uh, and what the heck, Stan Lee can have a cameo. Um, there But I don't know if you noticed, so this, this segment... Um, it's hosted by uh, Quincy Jones, or introduced by Quincy Jones, and there's the pi uh, the pianist uh, Ralph Grierson is playing in the background. I don't think he ever gets introduced as Quincy Jones. He just starts talking. No, no he doesn't. I don't think he does. Because I remember thinking, like, that looks a hell of a lot like Quincy Jones. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's quite strange. I mean, Quincy Jones, not just as a musician himself, but as a producer. Um, he did, oh, we mentioned last week Sinatra. Quincy Jones did one of Sinatra's final albums. It has a lot of fun jazzy flourishes um yeah it he's he's legendary and he should be introduced just as much as anyone else of the of the people and i guess they just assume if you're so highfalutin as to seeing fantasia 2000 you'll know who quincy jones is but that's um yeah i don't know that it's quite strange it's a good point One um thing i found weird about or i guess a little strange about the introduction was that he, he mentioned something he's like um 
you know, when they took jazz out of the nightclubs and, and put it in the, you know, put it on the main Broadway. Yeah, on Broadway, I remember thinking, I was like, isn't that, like, kind of one of the crappy parts about jazz? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, the, I'd rather... The cultural like, appropriation of... Yeah, pretty uh-huh. much. I want to go there again, but the Cotton whatever. Club, yeah. But, yeah, like, I'd rather, you know, hear, you know, Duke Ellington and John Coltrane instead of, like, you know, Glenn Miller or something like that. <laughs> jazz music but, wasn't legitimized yeah. until white people liked it. I mean, yeah. Exactly. It's, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah it, it, that is kind of hinted at it with that introduction. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, Although at the same time, that also does show how versatile and vibrant the form of jazz is. So I mean, it, it, that, that's a silver lining, I suppose. True, true. I wouldn't mind listening to, to more jazz. I'm not terribly familiar with the form, but I, I do think of it as sort of an analog of classical, sort of a, a modern version of classical music, in that it's typically mostly instrumental, and it's a lot of, um, but it's more loose. It's a lot of experimentation. And you just have to let yourself be enveloped with the music and just sort of, you know, sip on your scotch as you listen to the track and kind of lose yourself in it. it yeah, requires... I think the, like, way I can equate jazz with classical is that I know I'll never get a full grasp of it. It's so vast. Sure. I, I agree with that. All the different styles and, you know, whether it's, you know, bebop or acid jazz or. Um, I, I was listening yeah. to. Uh, some podcast, I don't recall the name, but the guy mentioned he worked at a at a Tower Records that had a big jazz selection, and he said, to a T, the people that would buy Miles Davis and the more typical jazz stuff was always white people, and the only people that would buy the more experimental modern jazz records were um, African-American customers. Huh. Which I thought was very interesting in that... Um, which, which doesn't matter. I mean, it's all it's all music. But I, I just thought that was an interesting piece. And that jazz yeah. itself has many subgenres. You can say I like jazz, but that in in of, of itself, that that um, statement is sort of meaningless because it's like, well, what kind of jazz? What? Yeah, uh, it's like saying I like food or I like know? movies more. To, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like movies. Ooh, Ooh. Colors on a screen, music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking, speaking of movies, I couldn't help this, but during the intro to Rhapsody in Blue, I kept waiting for the critic to start. Yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. It was inspired by... Waiting for the phone to ring. Jay, it's your ex-wife. <laughs> Time to Arty. pay up, honey. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds like a man. Um, Cockroaches have hired a, a firm to improve their image. They will now be called Huggabugs. <laughs> Last night you were, last night I wore two condoms for my protection. Um, <laughs> speaking of condoms, the next segment, Piano Concerto Number no. 2, Allegro Opus 102, uh, based on the Hans Christian Andersen, the Steadfast Tin Soldier. I, you know I, what I, yes. Oh, you know what I really like about this segment? So, um, Bette Midler does the introduction, and you know she does a, she does a great job, but what I love is that her introduction is a history lesson, because she talks about... Fantasia is a perpetual work in progress and talks about all the segments that were worked on but never produced, including she talks and shows a really brief, really the only clip of of the original version of Destino, which was Walt Disney's aborted collaboration with Salvador Dali, which I'm happy to say, after this movie was released, this was like three or four years ago. That's right, it got (laughs) animated, yeah. 
Yeah, some Disney animators mm-hmm. got the, dug the storyboards out and the soundtrack that was recorded, and they made the complete film. It really is beautiful. I'm why the hell was that not? That... Why the hell was that not a segment in Fantasia 2000? Yeah, that yeah, you could have been... done it. Then. Easy, it, right? I mean, it's Salvador Dali and Disney. How much? <laughs> if you're not going to put it in Fantasia, why the hell do it as a YouTube clip? <laughs> How do you miss that? Like, you know, right? Like, I mean, that's like what's that? Like, oh, some Salvador guy thing, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It wasn't he supposed to play the Emperor in Dune? I don't know. As a wise man once said, there's money in the banana stand. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, th- this story, its a, although it is a narrative, I, I, I like how the Tin Soldier looks. I, I love the lighting in this. It uh, sometimes looks a bit gothic, and it's... Um, I, I find this, this was a, a satisfying sort of segment. No, it's not as abstract as the kind of stuff I like, but its uh, it, it was a good you know, valiant attempt at sort of returning to more what the original uh, show did. Well, they used the piano concerto number two, Allegro Opus 102 by Dmitry Shostakovich to, to really, they really tell the complete tale of the steadfast tin soldier. I, I like the way it works. With and a happy I like ending. that. I like that it's done in a sort of half cell shaded. They, they use 3d animation, but try to make it look 2d in a very pleasing way. And yet, this is like the most Don Bluth of the segments. This feels like we're watching a teaser for a Don Bluth movie. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Typical think... Disney character designs. They don't move in a typically Disney way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's lots of rats, which is another Don Bluth trademark. <laughs> um, uh, Bald Mountain might have been creepy, but this Jack in the Box is scary looking. As, as oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, very cool. It's... Uh... Did did you like the segment, Alex? I did. I did. I thought it was um I thought it was well animated. The Jack in the Box was terrifying. And I thought it was kind of a funny irony. I know the steadfast tin soldier is its own thing, but um that they had, in Fantasia one they had kind of um exercised uh the nutcracker from Chiaowski's music and then here we have something kinda of, it looks as if it could be Nutcracker derivative with the soldier, what have you, mm, every yeah, class music, which I thought was an interesting, um, incidental as it may be, kind of juxtaposition or whatever you want to call it. It was neat. Um, talking about lesser segments, next we have Carnival of the Animals finale. You, um, you, now, do you mean lesser in a negative way or lesser in the fact that it's one of the shortest? In, in a negative way, this just seems like... So, I mean, it, it, it's somewhat amusing, but I just found this got tiresome, uh, regardless of how amusing it is to hear James Earl Jones say, what would happen if you gave a yo-yo to a flock of flamingos? <laughs> <laughs> he, he does a great intro, but yeah, I do like that they get him to say something. Silly right, like so, that. so silly in that senatorian voice of his. Um this is I, this is actually one of my favorites. I like really? that it's quick. Huh. I like the music well, paired sure, with the imagery. But... I like the storybook quality of the animation, and I just like I like the idea of a goofball flamingo playing with a yo-yo in the middle of a choreographed dance sequence. I might have liked this had this been more towards the beginning of the film. I don't. It's, it's just strange you come off a, a somewhat serious dramatic story with flamingo nonsense. Yeah, it felt like a weird turn coming from how. Good Rhapsody in Blue and the and the Tin Soldier one ones were and then this kind of was, it's fine, but it just kind of feels like a little too punny, like a flamingo with a yo yo. How about that? 
that that's true. It is concepts you could have pulled by drawing words out of a hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, the furry fan fiction on this segment is terrifying. <laughs> really? Do we need to do another fan fiction special? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of kidding, but it might actually exist. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> oh, it exists. I'm sure it exists. <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> the uh, the yo-yo made the flamingo walk the dog, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> the, okay, so we, we get the only uh, repeat of a segment from the original next with the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which, which uh, I guess and, you have to do, really. Uh, I don't know. You know, when, when I saw this in theaters, I recognized something that Roger Ebert did, and that the visual quality of the Sorcerer's Apprentice looked quite muddy and bad, um, at yes. least in theaters. And I'm not sure why that is. Certainly... Uh, by, you know, when they're working on this in the late 90s, uh, video remastering had gotten uh, competent. I- I'm not sure why it looks so... Maybe it's the color scheme. Maybe it's a lot darker colors than sort of the more brightly colored stuff we get in this feature. I don't know what it is, but... Um, well, Pennant Teller... Maybe... Oh, go on. I would say maybe the mix of old school animation, but I, I suspect that the version of Fantasia that's streaming right now probably is remastered, and, and they pulled the footage from a version that wasn't remastered. They might have just pulled it straight from an old negative uh, for this. That that could be. Possibly that, that thinking, sense. we're not going to pay to remaster one segment. We'll just pay to remaster the whole movie later. Sure, At least that's sure. my theory. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, that would make yeah. Do you think this segment's needed, Alex? Or um, oh, I remember watching it. And, you know, like I said, I hadn't seen Fantasia 2000. And I, having seen the, you know, rewatch to the Fantasia right before this, I remember kind of thinking, like, okay, I get it, but, um, eh? Yeah. Like, I thought, I was kind of hoping that there might be, like, lost footage cut back into it, or, mm. I don't know, something like that, maybe. But, I mean, it's fine. I can watch The Sorcerer's Apprentice 50 times. I'm sure I have over the years. But, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I Dis- Disney like... might as well just have stuck in an advertisement for the original Fantasia coming out in DVD this fall. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they were just padding it a little bit, but uh-huh. whatever. And I considering sh- it only runs seventy five minutes, I mean, that goes to show, like, th- that makes the sort of the tossed off feel of this okay. sequel as good as the segments might be. Um, now, what do you think of the intro by Penn and Teller? Cute. Yeah. Well, like Pen Pen brings so much energy to it. It's one of those things. It's one of those things where we'll line it. Just let them host the whole thing. I guess that's that's the thing. Every time I see the host come out, I just have to wonder why isn't this person doing the whole movie? Why do we have to just get a weird jarring bite of them in the middle? Not to mention with Pen and Teller, Teller being silent and the Fantasia bits don't have dialogue. Right? You could play on that. Yeah, yeah, you could play on that if they hosted the whole program. Um... Oh, yeah, yeah, the I, closest they get to that is right. Penn talking about how every great magician needs a dumb short sidekick who never talks. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the fortune of seeing Penn and Teller in uh, Las Vegas about um, seven years ago live at the Rio. And uh, if you're ever in Vegas, their show isn't terribly expensive, one. And two, it's it's just a lot of fun. It's um, They even did a stunt with a gun that I felt was pretty, uh, appear to be fairly dangerous. But it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a good, solid show that ends on a strange note of patriotism. Um, next, a piece of music that makes me laugh every time I hear it because it's so cliched. Pomp and Circumstance. 
Yeah, I I love that Donald Duck gets a time gets his time to shine in this. You know, he gets his equivalent of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and I love that they play the full pop and circumstance, not just the part that's always played at graduations. And yet, that music is so culturally entrenched in graduations. I feel like it was the wrong choice for this segment. Uh, this was forced to be included by Michael Eisner. Um. Hmm. Nobody was really... A lot of people were not thrilled with this idea. Um, Originally, the idea, uh, according to Wikipedia, would have involved Disney villains and heroes in a wedding procession carrying their future children who would be presented in a ceremony in a Greco-Roman setting. That would have been kind of cool. That sounds interesting. I mean, I suppose that's more interesting than Noah's Ark with Donald Duck. Um, but see, I think I think Noah's Ark with Donald Duck is a great idea. I'd like, although you should make Donald Noah. I don't like that Noah is a separate character in this. Mm, it yeah. should just be a put upon, frustrated Donald trying his damnedest to do this job he doesn't want to do. But instead, it has this kind of forced love story where he gets separated from Daisy, and he they each think the other one is dead, and then they get reunited at the end, but it, se- it seems so forced. That's not a big boat. They should be able to spot each other. <laughs> the other thing I think that's weird is that um, like having Mickey with a Sorcerer's Apprentice works, where I feel like Donald Duck is funny because of because you hear him, because his vocal, the, you know, his voice is very, you know, he mispronounces things. Wow, and he gets yeah. Right, funny stuff. So, silencing Donald Duck to me feels kind of like a misfire. Where you know, I think him being Noah, or in this case, Noah's assistant, that could just be a funny Donald Duck short in itself. Whereas this, I'm kind of like, I wish I could hear Donald Duck. Yeah, Goofy. What about what if it was Goofy instead? I'm going to talk about that in my pitch segment. Okay, I remember. I thought about that in the past, so maybe that would work. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite, they did a goofy bit, how to set up a home theater system <laughs> in the nineties. That's pretty funny. It might've been early two thousands. Um, regardless, this, this segment, it's, it's just okay. I, I, I like that you get some light, you get some interesting lighting. The animals look fine. It's just somewhat forgettable. Daisy at the end. I, I just might as well make me vomit. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the last piece is quite interesting and it's disney you know really taking inspiration from miyazaki uh firebird suite 1919 version by igor stravinsky oh this is so good yes yeah, yeah, i you... like that angela lansbury does the intro yeah i wish we had seen more of this mm-hmm. through the movie more stuff like this a little more inspired a little more expressionistic a little more experimental yeah, the and use yeah. of the color is quite vivid. Yeah, and they're definitely taking cues from Miyazaki. There's so much character in, in the sprite and the firebird and just wonderful use of color. The narrative works with the music, and I, I love... I don't know, I just I love I love the sort of ho- both hopeful and triumphant tone this ends on, which, which the segment really earns. Yeah, on the big screen especially, this segment was pretty magnificent. Uh, especially all the fire animation, I think, is well done. It's um, it's exciting. Although it, it, it has a story, it, it doesn't seem as um, clumsy or overt as in other segments. 
Yeah, it's very smooth. It's got a, yeah. it's got a nice rhythm and pace to it, and it's beautiful too. So, we we've talked. I guess, about, I guess yeah. there's not much to say about it because it's so good. Right, you just have to watch so it. Well. If you're gonna look up one clip of this to watch, watch this segment. Yeah, yeah it lets the movie end on a high note, and unlike like it's like this and Rhapsody in Blue. These two segments are why I wish there was a third Fantasia coming out. Yeah. Well put. Yeah, like, imagine if this had ended with a yo-yo segment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know the yo-yo segment? That's what you play during the credits, maybe. Yeah. Like Ooh, little, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I don't mind that. Or it's... Why not have Fantasia yo-yo edition, where it's just all clips. Or animal <laughs> a yo-yo in every yo-yo. segment? All, this, all, all the clips <laughs> are yo-yo segments. <laughs> To the same piece of music. It's like an anti-comedy bit. You digitally insert yo-yos into the hands of all the hosts. <laughs> Every time they do a hand gesture, a little yo-yo trick happens. And, and the introduction bits are just the host playing with a yo-yo, no dialogue. Just like looking at the screen, raising an eyebrow, shrugging. Oh, but ironically, Teller talks a lot. Yeah. Because uh, it's the history of the yo-yo and who invented it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Fantasia 2000... I, man, I really love the Rhapsody in Blue segment and the Firebird Suite, but I cannot recommend this film because I think it's so uneven. Um, I, I would say not, uh, I say sequel no to Fantasia 2000. I'm going to say sequel yes because of Rhapsody in Blue and Firebird Suite, but also it's short. You won't be out much time even if you don't like most of the segments. Hmm. Alex? That was um, kind of a selling point was the length. I was like, oh, at least I'm not stuck here very long. But I would have to go with... <laughs> I would have to go with sequel no because the, the bad outweighs the good. Like, when I was watching Rhapsody in Blue and, and Firebird Suite, I was thinking, like, I'm going to watch this again short soon. Like, I'll be YouTubing this soon because they're just so good. And the rest of it, I was kind of, like, you know, checking the runtime, being like, all right, how long am I here for? So, the the bad always the good, I'm afraid. Yeah, there's a lot of segments where you're better off making a sandwich. Um, yep. Let's go. Yeah, sandwiches. Mm. Uh, so, <laughs> let's do a pitch a segment, and we're just going to pitch if we could do our own uh, Fantasia segment. Um, I, I have one in mind. You know, I'm thinking now Disney owns Star Wars, right? So, <laughs> if, if you're going to do do tie-ins with your famous characters after all this had donald duck in a new segment why not use a track off the infamous 70 or yeah i think it is a no it's from the 80s shit the the mecco star wars album disco so one of the disco inspired probably the disco imperial march track and um and the animation will be done in the style of the uh, 70s animated canadian animated sequence from the holiday special Huh. And it would be like a weird, um, you would tell the, the story of, of the, the Skywalkers in short, maybe all from the, the, I don't know, from the droid perspective, from the perspective of like a frog on tattooing. Like you do some weird, <laughs> you, you do like an askew view on uh, the original and prequel trilogy in this like loopy 70s style with the overly wobbly arms 
and the kind of random bug-eyed style uh, of the Boba Fett cartoon from the Christmas special. <laughs> That's awesome. I'd watch that. Alex. Ooh. Um, <laughs> so I guess my pitch of sequel or pitch of sequence um, would be, like I was saying earlier, it would have been cool to see this movie take um, more experimental direction with music. So, I was picturing like a, like an electronica scored, you know, by someone like let's say Richard James or uh, Johnny Greenwood or, or Tom York from like Radiohead or something, scoring a sequence where you do like a meta thing where it's a animation of a struggling animator who's can't come up with anything good and then he eventually, uh, you know makes a creation that, uh, you know, comes to life and then ends up uh, bossing him around and pushes him around. And then, you know, he's a part of his own creation and, ooh, the, the, the creative process comes to life. And it gets spooky. Spooky, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets all spooky. Neat. Um, Thrasher, what about you? Well, all right, so... Uh, Mickey Mouse had his segment with the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Donald Duck had his segment with Pomp and Circumstance. I want to give my favorite Disney character, Goofy, his own segment. So my segment is going to be Goofy uh, with the Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss. You know, da-da-da-da-da, bum-bum, bum-bum. But this one, you know, we got to give Goofy a job that he can screw up royally. So the premise... It's going to be that Goofy is an apprentice to a blacksmith. And so the blacksmith is this big, burly guy. He just looks like a badass. We might even model him after the Disney version of Paul Bunyan uh, from the shorts that they did in the 70s. and so that, and that brings us to the music. So you know, we get da 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 da, and that's when he uses his hammer to hit the steel. Then we quickly pan over to Goofy with a tiny bit of metal and a tiny hammer and a tiny anvil. Dun, dun. So we get we get the echo between the two, and whatever awesome thing the main blacksmith does. Oh, you know what? Screw it. The main blacksmith will be Pete. It should be Pete. It should be another iconic Disney character. And that gives them an Abbott and Costello back and forth vibe. And whatever cool thing the main blacksmith does, Goofy is the blacksmith apprentice is screwed up so we see him make messed up versions of swords and tools and 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 little you know metal things like that and goofy it will all escalate at the end when goofy's shenanigans end up causing the entire smithy to collapse in on itself but out of the wreckage he will pull the one good thing he's made which is a tiny a tiny little triangle so goofy will sound the final note in the waltz on that triangle Awesome. Nifty. Um, great. Well, let's move on to what you watching. I watched um, something recently that was so bad I couldn't get through much of it, but I still think it might be interesting to talk about. This was a, a stand-up comedy special uh, on a streaming service called uh, Jackie Mason, the Ultimate Jew. Huh. It was, um, I think it, it's, it's his final Broadway performance, according to the description. I don't know if that's really true, because Jackie Mason, uh, for listeners that don't know, is a comedian that has been around for quite some time. Not only was he the star of Caddyshack 2, but he's uh, 86 years old, 
His hair is dyed a horrendous red color that looks really fake. Um, but he uh, he's a really old school Jewish comedian that speaks uses a lot of Yiddish in his jokes, and the way he tells the jokes are in a style that you don't really hear much anymore. I think it, it sounds like someone out of a completely different, like you step back at words into a time machine, um, hearing him tell the jokes. The delivery, it's like, set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline, yada, yada, yada. I, I don't think it's um, consistently funny necessarily, but his his confidence in himself is quite strange. Or, or not, not, that's not the right word. It, it's interesting to see. It's it's very curious. It's like you're walking, you're walking, you're watching a uh, a lobster with twenty claws dance around on stage. <laughs> I don't know if which it's could worth, have been a segment in Fantasia. It would have been, yeah. I don't know if it's worth your time, but it, I I just found it historically quite interesting. Well, Jackie Mason's an interesting figure because not only was is he the voice of Rabbi Hyman Krostovsky on The Simpsons, for which he won an Emmy, the only guest voice on The Simpsons to ever win an Emmy, uh, he's also like lived and performed through four distinct eras of American comedy. Exactly. It's um, he's he's been in the business for a while. He keeps on, uh, I think he keeps on doing shows, and that he he's. Uh, yeah, just the way he he has a very specific rhythm to the way he talks and the way he tells the jokes. So I I can't say I'd I'd recommend it, but if you're a fan of comedy, it's worth dipping your toe in the water and checking it out. Jackie Mason, the Ultimate Jew. Uh, Alex, what's something that you've been watching lately? Um, lately, uh. TV show wise, I've been watching who just um, they just put up the all of the uh, episodes of Bob's Burgers. So I've been watching reruns of that because I just think that show is a hoot um, with all the musical cues they do. And oh, yeah, just, over the end credits. I mean, that's quite, yeah, the dancing, the music. Yeah, and they do one at least one song per episode. I mean, they do quite a few, and I always just find them to be pretty hilarious. And for you know, more recent animated series. It's I think it's one of the better ones to have come out. It's got it's got a little heart and it's genuinely funny and it's not you know trying to be too raunchy like a like a Family Guy or anything like that. So I always appreciated that show. It's always well intended fun. Yeah, um, Bob's Burgers. It took me a little bit to get into because I thought visually the characters were so ugly. But um, my sister made me watch. Uh, upon, although under duress I, I watched the episode where they go to uh they do date night and they go to bar trivia because i was working uh part-time doing bar trivia stuff and they had that right on the money um yeah as far as the jokes and that's where it got me in the show i think doug benson was the trivia host oh yeah um that's right. I, I love you have an episode where the music over the end credits is a parody or, or maybe at some point there's a montage, a parody of the Goonies are Good Enough song, actually performed by Cindy Lauper. <laughs> That's awesome. Where it's about the the character, it's like a something in the butt, I think. Um, or some taffy monster thing. I, I don't quite oh, remember. Oh, taffy, taffy, I forget, yeah. They're, they were there in the underground tunnel thing from... Yep, uh, yep. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah. It's pretty early on. For that taffy guy was actually kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. um, Thrasher, have you seen Bob's Burgers? What do you think of the show? 
Oh, oh no, I, I really like it. I don't see it nearly as much as I'd want to, but I really like the show. I gotta ask, as, as, a, as a fan of H. John Benjamin, did either of you any, uh, see the episode of Archer that is technically <laughs> a crossover with Bob's Burgers? I saw a clip yeah. from it. It was very disturbing to see Bob's Burgers characters <laughs> rendered in the Archer style. I loved it. it. Yeah. Archer, I haven't been able to get into, but maybe I need to give it a second shot. I tried watching a few episodes from the first season and just kind of felt cold about it. I love the visual you, style of it, but... They get much more ambitious later on, okay. so, you, uh, yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Should I skip to a certain season, or do I need to soldier through season one? Uh, maybe just go ahead and start with two. With two? Yeah. Okay. I, I do appreciate that it looks like in some seasons they're going for different time periods, or going for... They seem to be mixing stuff up quite a bit. Well, they start to play around with different genres, and the and uh, so there's yeah, there's a lot of genre bending episodes in the second half of the series, and particularly the final season, which is kind of all a tribute to film noir. Which is, yeah, that's oh, really oh, is cool. it uh, over now or? Uh, it's in the last season. I'm not sure if they've aired the final episode. I didn't know that. Interesting. Okay, um, cool. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? Uh, so uh, my wife and I did something we'd been talking about doing for a long time. Uh, we sat down uh, last Saturday and we watched the entirety of the Alien film franchise. Uh, so so Alien, Aliens, Alien Cubed, Alien Resurrection, uh, and Prometheus. Uh, we were going to see Alien Covenant. Uh, unfortunately, things didn't work out towards the end of the day. We couldn't catch it. Mm. But we re- but in in one sitting, we rewatched the first five Alien films. I saw Alien Covenant in the theater, and I um, I kind of liked it, but, you know, we went with the guy who had not seen Prometheus, and he was deeply confused. Because <laughs> even though it, it takes place pretty, um, gee, I, you know, a decent amount of time in the future, it references Prometheus a lot. So, so rewatching the Alien films and sort of marathoning it, did you do it in a single day? Is that how you did it? Yeah, yeah, we did it in a single day. We, wow, uh, what what uh, what what cuts of the films did you watch? Yeah, actually, it's, now that you mention it, I am not sure. We we had bought a a DVD set that had the first four, um, but I don't. I I'll freely admit I do not know which cuts. Which uh, uh, which set watched. was it that you bought? Uh, I will I will have to. It was a standard definition set. Uh, I don't remember the specific name. Well, what are the? Do you remember what like the box art looked like? It, it was just it was just like generic aliens quadrilogy. So oh, <laughs> hmm. so my guess it, it might have been the theatrical versions, but I'm just assuming. Um, anyway, watching the films back to back over a day, what what sort of jumped out to you? Because we talked about those films a long time ago in the original sequel cast show. Well, I mean, it, it helped it helped remind me why I love these movies to begin with. But seeing all, it's interestingly enough, seeing all seeing all the movies together in one sitting made me appreciate the weaker entries more. So, Alien Cubed and, and Alien Resurrection, I enjoyed them more watching them watching them in sequence on the same day as the first movies. They they still felt like they were from an overall coherent body of work. I'm one of those crazy people that prefer Alien Resurrection to Alien 3. Hmm. Um, I've tried, I've given Alien 3 quite a lot of rewatches to try and get something out of it. And I like, uh, I, I like the last like 20 minutes of Alien 3. I think that's pretty interesting how dire it gets. And then um, visually and otherwise, it feels a lot like Terminator 2 at the end. Uh, but... <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> oh yeah, just just a little bit. But you know, it's um, 
I, I do think it's a real damn shame that when they produced that Alien Quadrilogy set, they reached out to all the directors to do alternate cuts, and Fincher refused to be involved at all, whether really? commentary or the documentary. They have a the extended cut, um, which later in the version uh, they released on Blu-ray, I think they even redubbed some of the lines with the original actors because the audio is so bad in the extended scenes. Um, do you have any recollection of that, Alex? Have you seen the extended cut of Alien 3? Yeah, I've got the, the Alien Quadrilogy Blu-ray set, and it has a extended cut of Alien 3. And while I won't say Alien 3 is a great movie, I find that I like it a lot more over the past few years, having rewatched it. My, I think my only thing with it is just that, like, it just kind of feels like one of those screenplay mishmashes where yeah. the concept like, uh, of, like, a derelict uh, prison colony with, you know, all lice-ridden and buggy and gross. With it's a, a bunch of bald British men screaming at each other in corridors. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very much like a BBC costume drama in that <laughs> Or like amateur theater, you know, like when you see like cowboys and they're like, oh, we're doing Macbeth, you know. I mean, yeah, there's that whole trend of doing like movies on the stage. You could do Alien 3 on a stage quite, um, quite easy, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's odd in the extended um, version of Alien 3, instead of the alien, uh, oh, the parasite manifesting itself in a dog, it's in a bull. Yeah, that's weird. It's like, who cares? Like, it, I don't know. Like, it's not like they animated a CG bull, like, trampling around, alien hybrid. Yeah. Um, the funny thing, too, with that is that, um, you know, most director cuts, there's, like, you know, it fleshes out the story more, so it elaborates on a different character more. Uh-huh. Whereas Alien 3 just feels like Alien 3, then there's Alien the longer Alien 3 the longer version. <laughs> right. It, there's something to be said about how... Especially once it gets going, how lean Alien 3 is, and it just is, is all about, although it's one alien hearkening back to the first film, like, it's pretty damn dangerous and people are just getting creamed. And the yeah. addition of additional dialogue scenes throughout doesn't do favors for the pacing. No. Um, no, it, it wasn't that great to begin with, so you're just kind of making it, like I said, just longer. I guess while we have you here, um, what did you think about Prometheus? Because that's sort of a controversial film. I first saw Prometheus, and I remember thinking, like, eh, no. And then um, I, I wasn't too wild about it. And then I rewatched Prometheus I struggled with for, like, years. Where even now the jury's still kind of out. But I still, I marginally like it. But my thing is that the reason why I love the first Alien so much is that it's a sci-fi, it's a horror, it's equal doses of both, but it's a blue-collar, dirty, believable version of science fiction. Whereas Prometheus feels like it went back to that, like, smooth, everyone's-wearing-spandex kind of, like, everything's-nice-and-clean sci-fi, which just doesn't feel like the Alien franchise, or that first Alien film at all, and the fact that it was Ridley Scott kind of shocked me. And then there's just all these, like, I find the, the characters really suck i don't like any of them they're like not even fassbender kind of, as a i like him he, he's great mm-hmm. but the the humans i guess you could say are just i don't know they're just all annoying hippies <laughs> <And>, you know <laughs> they're just you know smoking yeah. pot and 
you know, begging little critters to kill them. Um, there's some cool ideas. There's some cool stuff going on. Um, and it's a little, it's a little confused, but I, I do like Prometheus in its own weird way, despite all my complaints about it. Thrasher. Overall, I enjoy Prometheus. I'm, I'm, st- I'm on the fence about whether it hurts or helps being connected to the rest of the, uh, the aliens franchise. Um, and that's all. I also find it a very visually pleasing movie. I guess it's for for me, Prometheus. It's not great, but it's on the high end of good. There you go. Yeah. I, the thing that moved me the most, uh, I was almost brought to tears by the beauty of the special effect of the film, in that you they kept the '80s uh, sort of neon green and bright red graphics on oh, the hologramic the hologram table thing. And I love that you do a rendering of. Um, like science fiction, seventies sci-fi, it, using modern technology, but you keep it like that. Felt very much in line of something that could have been from the first film. I thought that was really cool looking, even though it's a bunch of red and green blobs, but um, looked a bit Christmas looking. And Alien Covenant is—it's weird because uh, I don't want to spoil it, but it's um, more of a more of an action picture and less of a sense of wonder than than Prometheus. Um, that being said, there's still a lot of idiot characters in the story. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I feel like the, I like Covenant. I have fun with it. Um, well, fun might not be the best word, but I don't know. I had a good time watching it, but, um, I felt like a lot of it was like corrective action on Ridley Scott's yeah, part. Yeah, so. it's an easier watch, that's for sure. But the I weird feel- thing is Ridley Scott has said he's wanted to do like, like an interquel and a sequel to it and since alien covenant didn't do that good like does that mean we're gonna get that aborted project that's the alien three that pretends like alien three and four never happened with right. weaver and uh uh bill well shit he died didn't he paxton I... oh yeah i think everyone pretty much everyone from two michael except... bain michael bain would have been in it i think that's yeah i'm sorry yeah that's um, I'm just trying to think of who, because remember in the beginning of Alien 3, they're like, so-and-so died, so-and-so died, right. the guy died. Um, Do you remember hearing about this movie, Thrasher? It would have been done by Neil Blomkamp, the guy that did District... Um, District 9, yeah. District 9, I, uh, would it would have been interesting, and yet, at the, at the same time, I, I would rather see him, I would rather see him do, like, why not, why not maintain the continuity? I... I I hate it. I I absolutely hate it when in a multi-part story, people start to pretend that certain parts of it that they didn't like didn't exist. Um, I, I think it leads to a lot of. I think it leads to in the long run leads to a lot of bad storytelling and like weird narrative one-upsmanship. Uh, you know, I've been I've been seeing this stuff happen in comic books for decades, and it never works out well. I do not want to see it applied to movies at the same time. Sort of like in the Highlander series, so every sequel pretends like none of the other movies ever happened. Yeah, I would rather, yes, I would rather see a Highlander sequel that embraces the fact that Highlanders are aliens from the planet Zeist and does something cool with that. I love it when a piece of a story's continuity that is almost universally reviled is used to do something really cool. Uh, Alex, do you like Highlander? Um, I don't remember them well enough to really talk about them okay. with any, any confidence. Do you care if I spoil something from Highlander the Source? Oh, I am not precious about spoilers. Okay, so. great. 
So um, we, I think we touched on this years ago in the sequel cast show, but I want to say that Highlander the Source might be the biggest piece of shit I've watched for this podcast <laughs> in the original form. And not only that, um, it was a uh, direct-to-video... I think it got a very brief theatrical release in Los Angeles or something, but uh, basically a direct-to-video sequel that was a follow-up on the Highlander TV series, um, but uh, which I'm not terribly familiar with. But the the end, you know, it's about the the... Adrian Paul, the, the titular Highlander, is trying to find out the source. Where do they come from? And he goes to this sort of, um, oh, this kind of phantasmagoric world where it looks like they're in a sand pit filmed with a red filter. And the bad guy has blades for arms. And basically, the Highlander tricks him into spinning so fast he traps himself in the sand. And that's how he conquers the, the big bad guy. And it sets itself up somehow for a sequel, or like it—he regains the ability to have children, or something. And I think that's how it ends. Like it's—it's—it—it's it, it, mind-bogglingly horrendous. Like it's not even enjoyably bad, except for that last sequence. But it's oh, just so as bad as the Alien sequels can be, they are not as bad as the Highlander films. Um, yeah, sounds like it. I took it—I took it back to the source. Um, all right. <laughs> So thanks again, Alex, for, for coming on this episode. Um, where can uh, people catch you online? Uh, you can find me um, on Twitter, on the Twitter at uh, CrabNebula1914. And there's also a lot of fun stuff going on on the Facebook group Pixels and Reels. Check it out. It's all about movies, video games, and pop culture, what have you. And uh, TalkFilmSociety.com, BattleshipRetention, and FilmInquiry.com. Thrasher. Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, what's something you're you're working on that people can check out? Oh gosh, well we uh, just released uh, 100 oddities for an Enchanted Forest, which, depending on when you're listening to this, may still be on sale as part of DriveThroughRPGs.com's Christmas in July sale. It's got a lot of stuff for 25% off or more. Uh, I'm currently collaborating with Clint staples on 100 oddities for a sewer and this is why i hate ndas i'm actually involved in two big projects now but i can't say anything until well in one case i can't say anything until the official announcement of the product is made which is probably going to be at gen con and the other i can't talk about until after a certain book is already released so i don't know when i can talk about it publicly but my name's going to show up on something really cool in about six months uh, i when, when the NDA allows me to talk about it more on the show, I will talk about it more on the show. Sure, so so stay tuned, lovely listeners. I have been lately writing uh, some pieces for Hardcore Gaming 101, so I've been playing old video games and writing about them, and it, um, you know, I'm not as good at, at video games as I used to be, but I was never that good at them to begin with, so it's, it's an interesting experience. Um, writing about video games long form i i enjoy it it's just a different exercise than writing about uh than writing about films uh not to mention video games are a bigger um, time investment than a movie which is usually about two hours i'm not complaining it's just a different kind of experience um that'd be an interesting transition yeah yeah it uh you know and in in some ways, I think the the older games are more interesting, but also my taste in games have changed over time. And I think I can say, but while my taste in movies, I don't think really have changed. 
I like sort of the the Verhoeven gutter trash, um, John Waters aesthetic. <laughs> and for video yeah. games, I, I I used to like RPGs, and now I like more action. Um, well, either simulations or, or action stuff. Kind of depends. And if I could say something, say something about video games to yeah. video game designers who may be listening, don't waste our don't waste your players' time. Don't waste our time. Uh, playing through, <laughs> I, I playing through Batman uh, Arkham Knight, yeah. having an overall good time. But damn you for the whole Riddler trophy thing. <laughs> oh, I've never been a guy that collects hiding, all the shit in the games. I never hide a of boss fight behind collecting over two hundred little widgets. <laughs> oh, how dare you! I, I was reading in the new uh, Zelda game, Breath of the Wild, they have some some quest where you have to collect, a side quest where you collect like a thousand leaves or something, and the, the grand prize you get is a golden poop statue. Oh my god. Which I think is, is pretty good. That's that's epic <laughs> uh, epic trolling of the player. Um, do you like uh, video games at all, Alex? Or I love the Zelda games, which I was, I was just about to say that that's a pretty... Um... That's pretty unexpected for Zelda games because they're pretty, they're very, very self-contained. You don't get a lot of crossover or like reference-heavy stuff, you know. Uh huh. Have you played the Zelda. new one or? No, I haven't. The farthest I think I got was the for the DS. The um, ah shit, I can't remember the name of it now. The Phantom of the uh, Hourglass, I think it is, where you have the boat. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. Um, I, cool. I had a great time with that one, but um. Anything beyond that, I've, I've, my, my video game game, I'm off my video game game. <laughs> right, and there, it's it, it's the kind of thing, there's so much out there, it gets a bit overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. Um, not to mention, you know, $60 is not an insignificant amount of money. That too, If yeah. you're talking about brand new stuff. Even like a, a pricey DVD set, you're not going to spend 50 bucks on one movie. Right. Exactly. Unless you're getting an out-of-print. Even then. Well, uh, anyway, this has been a good episode ostensibly about Fantasia 2000. Uh, follow, <laughs> like us on Facebook. Uh, just search up SequelCast2. Uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow the show uh, on Twitter at SequelCast2. And uh, next time around, we're going to announce uh, what we're going to do next, Thrash. Right? We, we've been talking off mic. Uh, back and forth, and we're making sort of an outside-of-a-box decision that's a bit of a cheat, but I think listeners will enjoy it. I think they will, too. Uh, why don't you say what it is? I Actually, I would rather hear it coming from you. Uh, okay. So. I have my reason. Uh, very good. We are going to be looking at the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We're going to have two episodes looking at the BBC miniseries, and then cap it off with an episode on the movie from, oh, 2005, thereabouts. I cannot wait. Sweet. Yeah, we, you know, we talk about Douglas Adams here and there in a lot of these shows, and I just wanted an excuse to talk Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's interesting uh, looking at, like, the budgetary differences of the BBC compared to a very expensive Disney film. <laughs> We cover the full spectrum on this show. So, Alex, thanks again for being on these two episodes, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a good time. Anytime. It was great. Speaking of that movie Megaforce you mentioned last week, the Riff Tracks Tracks version is on Amazon Prime. 
Yes, that. So yeah, if you like, I say, if you need something to inoculate you against the movie's inherent cheesiness, that's the way to watch it. I think the movie's cheesiness is probably going to be the funnest part of it. I think I found a link for it on YouTube. I would agree. Probably so. Yeah. It's that kind of movie. Excellent. I'll have to try that out. It seems pretty rad. Um, all right. So uh, for sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Saying. What would happen if you gave a yo-yo to a flock of flamingos? SequelCast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at BattleshipPretension.com. The theme song to SequelCast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at MarkWithTheSea.com. You can also listen to SequelCast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to Stitcher.com and search for SequelCast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 